Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just some housekeeping stuff, as we usually do at the beginning of each episode. We got a tremendous response, and quite frankly, we're still getting a tremendous response from the series we did on the Boston FBI. So in that, I had asked the question, in that podcast, I had asked the question, do you trust the FBI, and can this agency continue? I asked you all for emails on it, and now I have to ask you to stop. I'm sorry. If I haven't gotten back to you on that one, it may be a little while. We were slammed with emails on that case. And good job with your homework. You included those two questions. But, man, it's just so much. I'm having a difficult time getting back to everybody. But thanks for the exchanges. I appreciate it. The show's really growing. And we got some exciting things in the near future. And as the weather warms, I'm going to tell you all about them. In the meantime, do me a favor and give the show a share to some friends who also like true crime or the city of Boston or absolutely horrible accents. This is the show for them, let me tell you. So give us a share if you see us on the internet and do your best. Spread the word. Come on, get to work. All right, guys, forgive me if my voice is still a little off. Man, the pollen this season is absolutely insane. If you suffer from allergies... You know exactly what I'm talking about. But for our case today, we don't have to jump in the Wayback Machine, guys. We're just going back to 2016, and it's actually still open, this case. And it's the horrible case, massively unnecessary and simply evil. This is an evil case. It's the murder of Vanessa Marcotte, which happened in August of 2016 in Princeton, Massachusetts. This case comes to us by way of suggestion from a friend of the show, and he is a student at Milton Academy. And I was thinking, this kid, if he was a senior this year, he probably just graduated from Milton Academy. Christopher, this is your episode you suggested to Boston Confidential. Here it is, buddy. Thanks for interacting with us, and thanks for the suggestion. It was a really good one. Let me tell you guys a little bit about Princeton, Massachusetts, Princeton is north of Worcester, Massachusetts. Worcester is the second largest city in Massachusetts. Princeton is a slice of Americana, and it's simply beautiful. It's a beautiful town. It seems to be a well-run place. Downtown is quintessential New England, and although it's close to the city, it may as well be light years away. There are some extremely rural parts of Princeton, It's a small town, but geographically, it's a large area. But once you get outside of downtown Princeton, I think there must be like an acre lot minimum with Town Hall because the houses are very spread out, a lot of greenery. 
The parks are beautiful, well taken care of. Definitely a great place to raise a family. People do commute into Boston from Princeton, Massachusetts, but it's over an hour. It's probably about an hour and 15 minutes. And during traffic times, I don't know, it would be two hours into the city of Boston. A lot of people work in the Worcester area in Princeton. There's not a ton of industry in Princeton itself. It's a quintessential small town. All right, guys, let me tell you a little bit about Vanessa Marcotte. She was actually 27 years old, and she was living in New York City in 2016, but she was visiting, I believe, her mother and her aunt in Princeton. And the family had grown up in Lemonster, Massachusetts. From all my research, it appears that Vanessa Marcotte was an only child. Her dad was named John Marcotte, and her mom was Rosanna Marcotte. As I said, they had lived in Lemonster, Massachusetts, which is right nearby. Princeton's actually probably a little bit more leafy and stuff than Lemonster, but, you know, six and one, half a dozen the other, almost in that area. Vanessa went to the Bancroft School in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is kind of a high-end prep school. And I believe she went there from the lower grades all the way up through high school. And she was an exceedingly bright student. She graduated and went on to Boston University where she was a communications major. So just to get into BU, you know you've got to be a shop tack there, right? And she majored in communications and graduated with honors out of BU. So the kid was squared away. She was the real deal. She graduated from BU in 2011 and then went to work in Boston. I don't know if this was just after graduation, so it may have been an internship, then job offer for a company called WordStream. And then she went on to work for Vistaprint, I believe in suburban Boston as well. But she did get a job eventually at Google in New York City, and she had been living there in 2016 when this tragedy, this evil happened to her. And man, this kid does everything right in life. And I know people are going to say maybe she had it easy going to the Bancroft School. You don't know that, right? She worked hard at the opportunities presented to her, went on to BU and kicked ass there. So she's got to have something going for her. And those two jobs in the high tech sector in Boston led her to Google, where she was working as an account manager. And I got to tell you, I remember seeing this case in the news when it happened. The people at Google were falling all over themselves on this. Like, they were really hurt by her sudden and violent departure. And you don't really get that from Google or a lot of the other high-tech companies. But these guys were right on TV. And the executives at Google loved her. They said, you know, she was part of the family there. And I think that's kind of how she was. Once you got to know her, she was part of the family. So it seems that Vanessa Marcotte was living every young girl's dream. She goes to school for what she's interested in and gets a series of jobs of progressing responsibility in that field and ends up working at Google. I mean, for a young person, could there have been a better trajectory in her career anyway? I'd say no. I mean, she was hitting on all cylinders here. I don't know if she was living in Brooklyn. A lot of kids go to Brooklyn rather than Manhattan, get a roommate, and they just live that 
New York lifestyle, you know, the city that never sleeps. And, you know, maybe sometime after she would have put her time in at Google, went on somewhere else and settled in more permanently. But she made a point of coming home to Princeton to see her mother and her aunt. And they said this was like on a bi-monthly basis. So she was home a couple times a month anyway. So I know I had mentioned previously, guys, that Vanessa was into running and she had run the Falmouth Road Race. I don't know if anybody from outside of New England, if you're not familiar, the Falmouth Road Race is probably the most scenic I've ever seen. I've run a couple road races. I've never run Falmouth, but I've walked it and it goes right by the ocean. It's a beautiful run. She ran that running for charity, I believe, in 2012 and then again in 2014. And she was in very good shape. All right, guys. So it's August 7, 2016. Vanessa Marcotte is back from New York City. Typically, she took one of those commuter buses. And I'd say, I don't know, it's probably two and a half hours from New York City back to Princeton. Maybe a little bit more because the station's probably in Worcester, Mass. But regardless, she's home on August 7th, 2016. And at a certain point, she decides to go out and exercise. And this is in the afternoon. I've heard it described as a run. I've heard it described as a walk. Either way, Vanessa was walking from her neighborhood, her mom's neighborhood, into an area that she knew. I believe at a certain point she had patronized a local convenience store and then she either continued her run or, you know, people thought she went on the way home at that point, but she never shows up. After that convenience store, poof, she's in the ether. You know what I mean? And pretty soon mom and the aunt start getting a little ootsy on this. She's not that type of kid to just disappear. An hour, yeah, maybe she ran into a friend. Maybe she's having fun doing something. Two hours, you're getting a little nervous. Three hours, that terror's got to set in, you know? And if you've ever felt that terror, and God, I hope you never do, where your kid's missing. And I had a very limited situation with my kid was missing in a Disney world for a few minutes, a few minutes. And I almost lost my S, right? So you can imagine what Mrs. Marcotte is going through at this point, right? They call the Princeton PD. And Princeton PD, you know, they ramp up pretty quickly. They start a search and all this. And everybody's hoping it's just some misunderstanding. Maybe she ran into somebody from college. They're going to go grab a beer. You know how 20-somethings are. Hey, let's go do it. Oh, I haven't seen you in so long. That's best case scenario, but as each hour goes by, that gets less and less likely. And just before 8.30, the body of Vanessa Marcotte is found in what is described as a heavily wooded area. And it seems to be about a half mile, God damn it, half mile from her mom's house, you know, and it was an isolated area, and there were signs of sexual assault. I'm just going to tell you the case facts as I know them. Vanessa was strangled to death. She was hit in the face. This was a violent struggle. All of her clothes were taken. Her iPhone was taken, and she was left naked in the woods. And it was a brutal assault. And you want to know what? I told you Vanessa was in good shape. She was an athlete, right? 
she fought back. God bless her. And they believed the site where Vanessa was found was a secondary site. She was abducted somewhere else. All right, guys, I just want to interject here. Probably not the best place to do so right in the middle of the story, right? But ladies, if you're ever confronted with a person with a weapon or something like that, demanding that you go with them to another location, don't go. Don't go because if they wanted to do something, if they wanted your money, why couldn't they do it right there, right? Don't go. Fight that. And I think that's what happened here. Ladies, protect yourselves out there. I'm going to end my interjection here and we're back to the story. Sorry. So Vanessa's iPhone's taking her keys and all this. And the people who found her, when they turned it over to the police, all the police could smell is gasoline. Her body was set on fire. And it seemed to be focused on the hands in the feet area. So detectives kind of worked this through really quickly that this person is trying to get rid of DNA. And the smell of gasoline was overwhelming, and that'll come into play later. So I think the first thing to be done in these cases is to get a good identification. And it jibed because they were actually out looking for Vanessa at that time, right? And it was confirmed pretty quickly to be her. So now the investigation really ramps up. And some witnesses are quickly developed, relatively quickly developed. So through these witnesses, the detectives develop the end of Miss Marcotte's day, if you will. She goes out in the early afternoon for that walk or run. And she had stopped at the mountainside market on Hubbardston Road, which is very close to her house. And she was seen, you know, walking around drinking. So she must have done some type of exercise, right? While she's talking on her cell phone. Another witness reported they had seen a dark SUV following Marcotte. And I believe the situation was this. She went into the store and that person took notice of this driver, the operator of the SUV. He was later described as a Hispanic male, like 5'10", athletic build, with a short or shaved head, short hair or shaved head. After that, when Miss Marcotte left the store, the guy kind of reversed direction and followed her again. The witness kind of kept his eye on it. It seemed like the SUV went about its business, so the witness paid it no further mind. That's my understanding of that interaction. So that brings us up to about one o'clock on Hubbardston Road. Another witness would later come forward saying he saw a dark SUV. The description was just a dark SUV with no brand name or anything like that. But what he said was this operator, who's also described as a Hispanic male, and it appears to be the same person, had his hood up like there was car trouble. I don't know how close this guy was to the mountainside market on Hubbardston Road, because if you think about it, you're looking at this girl down the street, and if you get ahead of her and she hasn't noticed you, and you pull over with your hood up, you have a legitimate reason to be out and maybe in her path. And your approach is, hey, can you help me? I don't have my cell phone. My car's disabled. And people are going to help you. It's Princeton, Massachusetts, right? And maybe that's how this goes. But the same person would later say that he saw the vehicle again in the same exact spot, 
now with that hood closed. And I believe that was an hour and 90 minutes later. So we have from about one o'clock to about two o'clock. And around that same time, Miss Marcotte's cell phone was disabled, shut off, broken, however it goes off. But at 2.11 p.m., her phone stops accepting a signal and it's logged as that. So that was easily retrievable. And I think they developed this information pretty quickly. So I think the first things that the police said about this case publicly was Vanessa had fought back so valiantly, right? And they were trying to tell people to be on the look for people who were kind of cut up. They've got cuts on their hands, chest, face, because I think Vanessa was in a battle and she gave some good licks in this and she ended up succumbing, but some DNA was found on Vanessa and I believe it was on her hands. And remember, that's the place where this guy, whomever did this, put gasoline in an attempt to burn that DNA away. But they found some DNA, and I believe it was under her nails. As much as they would say publicly, it was on her hands. So they got that, and they sent that off to the lab pretty quickly. So I have to tell you, I'm very impressed with the police investigation in this case, and let me tell you why. The DNA, and everybody must have let out a cheer when there was DNA on this, because it was a brutal crime scene. The brutality of it didn't come, it wasn't exposed till later, but people who were at the scene will never forget it. So it must have been a great feeling to start getting some traction on this. You've got some witnesses who say, yeah, there was some strange activity with this SUV and another independent witness on it. And so they start working that angle of it, and now they know they've got DNA, right? So things are starting to roll. You're getting some investigative momentum. And that had to be a great case to work. It, as bad as the circumstances were, you had to know, you had to feel, geez, this is going in the right direction. So from the autopsy, they get the DNA. And I believe the coroner was able to further shrink the time of death from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. But there was a lot of talk of the fact that when her phone was smashed, that was likely around the time of her demise. So they're thinking it was closer to 2.11 p.m. when the phone went dead. So they sent the DNA out with a rush on it, and I think they sent it to a private lab. I don't know if it's at that lab, Parabon, but what they got back, it was a ton of DNA, so they got a great sample. And they actually were able to develop a generic profile of the person attached to that DNA sample. And it was a Hispanic male between 20s and 30s, athletic build, stuff like that. It really fit the description of the person those other two witnesses had noticed around Vanessa in the dark SUV, and now it's all coming together. And the state police released this not only as a press release, but among each and every law enforcement agency in the Commonwealth. And a guy who was attached to the district attorney's office, he's actually a detective, but his rank is trooper. And his name was Robert Parr, P-A-R-R, Trooper Robert Parr. He had just heard that this had come over the wire or however they get their information. And he was interested. Naturally, this is a murder in Worcester County. 
and he was attached and they did the whole county. I think they break it up by section, but it was still definitely his county. So Trooper Parr, he notes that he's like, geez, okay, so what we're looking for is a dark SUV, and I believe it was an older model, they kind of narrowed it down, to an older model SUV driven by a Hispanic male, about 5'10", closely cropped hair, kind of athletic build. So he puts it in the back of his mind and he's going about his business. To be honest with you, I don't even think Trooper Parr was assigned to the case, to Vanessa's case, you know, he was just kind of a squared away guy who heard something and put it in the back of his mind who thought, I may be able to use this later. And you want to know what? He's working in Worcester, Massachusetts later that day. And he sees somebody fitting that general description. He's like, it can't be, it can't be. But I think he was working something else and he's driving. So he writes the license plate down on his hand because he had no paper nearby. And he's like, eh, I'm going to go run this. So he runs it and they get the information. And I believe the next day he brings it into the office and they go over to this guy's house. So the vehicle registration came back to an Angelo Cologne Ortiz. And he was 31 at the time. And he had resided in Puerto Rico and had come over here and he had been working as a delivery driver for a third party FedEx operation. So I guess they delivered the overflow FedEx packages. And that's what he did for a living. And he lived in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I believe it was right where Trooper Parr had seen him. So now they have a name to work with and they're talking to this guy. And I believe there were some scratches on him but he did attribute it to his job. I also believe that on the day Vanessa was killed, this guy was off duty. It was one of his days off and he had some difficulty accounting for his whereabouts, but they offer that DNA test and it usually goes, hey, this DNA test, if you've got nothing to worry about and we'll be on our way. They take the DNA and they swab them, but it would come back later right, that the state police, I guess you sign a release to take DNA. It was in Spanish, but the person who actually translated this, it was kind of a weird thing, wasn't an actual translator, but knew Spanish and knew English. And it would be found later that there were some oddities in the form that signed, but in the translation itself, it was obvious that Cologne Ortiz was giving up his rights and he signed away his rights on the form. That would come into play later. But pretty quickly, it comes back as a DNA hit, guys. And now the cops must be going apeshit. This is some good police work here. So it comes back and they make the arrest. And so what they have for evidence at the time was obviously the DNA. That is everything, right? Because it's one in, you know, a gazillion that it wasn't him. How did your DNA get on Vanessa Marquardt, right? He'll have no plausible answer. Also, you have those two other witnesses who identified the vehicle and who gave descriptions 
of Colon Ortiz. And it would come out later that this guy was, in fact, off. But his GPS puts him right in the area, his telephone's GPS. So things just keep turning the other way for Mr. Colon Ortiz. And, man, so what this guy did was kind of just stalk her, right? And I think he was out hunting. He reminds me of that guy in Kingston, Massachusetts, Henry Meinholz. Just couldn't control himself. So he's out hunting for, you know, a woman. And he sees her. And that's what the witness described, if you remember, that he had reversed direction to come look at her again and went the other way when she left the store. The witness thinks, eh, it's okay, you know, he... Must have drove on. But what I think happened was that guy drove ahead. Colon Ortiz drove ahead of Miss Marcotte, puts the hood up, and that's the play, right? That's the trap. I don't know if she falls for it, but she ended up kicking his ass a little bit and took some of his DNA. So that's where it lies now. And just after that, they make the arrest. Once they got the DNA, they made the arrest. And then they had some other evidence come up. And they didn't relay that to the public for quite a while. But the other evidence they came up with is telephone GPS. That's a gold mine. Puts him right in the area. He also fills up with gasoline about six miles from the site where Vanessa was found. And remember, there was a pungent smell of fresh gasoline. So what they're theorizing is she's killed at about 2.11 p.m., he purchases the gasoline because he knows they fought and his DNA is on her. I don't know if it's in any other place. If you catch my meaning, I hadn't heard anything in regards to that. But he knows they fought and his DNA is now on her. And that's what he does to set the fire. He goes to that gas station, purchases some gasoline, and comes back lights her on fire and takes all her clothes. Again, that's an attempt to take his DNA back, right? So he leaves her with nothing on. He takes her cell phone and all that. So that's why all that stuff was missing. It was just a ruse to take his DNA back or at least away from the crime scene. And it didn't work. And so all this happens because a state police detective, Robert Par is paying attention. That's all he did. He was just paying attention. You know, I may need this. And boom, he puts it in his brain. And man, there it is. It's like the universe manifesting it, right? So he writes it down. And I'm sure he's got to be like, it can't be. I just don't believe it. I'm going to run it. And then he takes it every step of the way. Yeah, it is. Okay. He must pass it up to his boss. Let's go give this guy a, a talking to. And he does. And they get a DNA match in the first meeting. A DNA match in the first meeting. No warrant, nothing else. Man, some good police work, right? So whenever you complain that you don't get your money's worth out of the police, and I make that complaint too, you can point to this case because this shop-witted detective put two and two together. They put that information out for a reason, and that's the home run. You know, this guy is arrested for a homicide. What if Detective Parr didn't do that? What if he was angry that day, not listening, didn't give a shit, like a lot of state employees 
like a lot of employees everywhere, right? And he says, F this place, and he's not engaged. I think that murderer goes free because there'd be nobody to compare that DNA to. And nobody had that guy's plate. He just had his hood up on the road for a little while, you know? I don't know if they would have got back there. And to be honest, without that DNA, they definitely wouldn't have been able to make that arrest on just having Cologne Ortiz's car in the area. So good police work there. Very good. But it must have been strange. Every step of the way, they must have been thinking, it can't be. It's too easy. And boom, there it was. And it all played out. So I believe I mentioned that this case is still active. This was a 2016 homicide. They make the arrest in 2017. I believe it was April 2017. And then COVID hits, I guess. That's the major delay here. But there was an appeal. The defense, Colon Ortiz's attorneys, took issue with the form used to get his signature, his waiver for DNA. And they said the Spanish wasn't correct. And the officer or trooper who was there to translate wasn't a trained translator or some nonsense like this. And this goes back and forth. And I think this takes up a large amount of time because the case still, I don't think this case is scheduled for trial yet. But the judge ends up denying that motion, saying, no, he knew enough of the translation to sign his DNA away, basically. And he did. So the DNA stays in. And you'll probably see this on appeal, you know, when this guy is found guilty, because the DNA is the slam dunk. If there's no DNA, the case just falls apart. There isn't enough. The other circumstantial evidence puts him near there, but the DNA puts him on Miss Marcotte. So something I also forgot to mention in this case, just the week prior, there was a similar case that occurred in the Bronx, New York, a neighborhood down by the ocean and relatively crime-free area, kind of upscale, you know, people hear the Bronx. It's not the entire Bronx, that of the South Bronx. But this girl, attractive young lady, jogging, was set upon by some maniac and murdered. And it was just a week prior to Vanessa Marcotte's killing and People thought immediately before this, they knew there was a suspect that these were connected. They weren't. But man, that what a coincidence that was. It's kind of strange, too. The cases are very similar because it was just this crime of opportunity where some sexual nut jumps out at you. And what do you do? Man, what a feeling that's got to be to be a woman like that, right? Always a little bit afraid. I'm going to go for a run, but you got to look over your shoulder. Should I? Should I go for a run? And I think this was a totally random thing that this guy was out hunting and he saw somebody in a remote section in Princeton. Man, it only takes 10 seconds. If things go your way to get somebody in a car and bundled and drive away. And that's what I think happened here. He removes Vanessa from one site and maybe he tells her, you know, you're coming with me, and he's got a knife, he's got a gun, we don't know. And she tries to ride it out, and what else are you going to do? But at a certain point, Vanessa fought like a banshee. And if we were sane society, what Vanessa had done would give us the evidence to put people like that who commit those crimes 
right in the electric chair where they belong. This case isn't adjudicated yet, so I'm going to withhold my thoughts on the death penalty for whomever did this, but Mr. Colon Ortiz's DNA is all over the place. Let's face it, right? He's likely to be convicted, and this should be a death penalty case. People who jump out of the woods for sexual gratification on our daughters, on our nieces, we have to say as a society that we're just not going to accept that. And that's the ultimate sanction. You're not going to terrorize our community. You're not. And if you do, we're going to fry your ass. End of story. All right, guys. So the last thing I have on this case is from January of this year, January 2022. That motion to suppress filed by the defense regarding the DNA and the form and the translation, all that. That was denied by the judge, and now it's set for trial. It's supposed to begin sometime later this year, but quite frankly, we're so delayed from the virus, I just don't know if we're even running jury trials anymore, so I don't know if you'll see this trial this year. But man, he was indicted in 2017, and he's in custody now. And geez, that's a long time. Man, that's a long time to get ready for a trial, but... I think the state's case is pretty airtight. That circumstantial evidence pinpoints him in the area. And from what I can gather, he gives no good account of why he's in Princeton, Massachusetts when he's not working. He's not delivering packages. He doesn't have any associations. He's out hunting. That's my thing, right? But also, man, is this the profile of somebody who had done this before? I know like going to buy gasoline and all that stuff shows he's not that advanced, right? And that this was kind of a frenzy, but man, he was a budding serial killer, no? If the cops didn't take that note on his hand, write the license plate down, man, you could have a serial killer on your hands right now. The strange thing about this guy, Angelo Colon Ortiz, he has no prior arrests. And I know sometimes when people come over from Puerto Rico, they change their names and stuff like that. But as far as anybody can tell, he had never been in trouble before. But he did have a strange reputation in Worcester where he lived. He'd say very vulgar things to the women. And he'd openly stare at women all the way down the street. And he was working for this kind of a subsidiary of FedEx. And there was a female postal worker that had to interact with him. And he didn't know that she spoke Spanish. And in Spanish, this guy, Colon Ortiz, would say the most vulgar things to other Spanish-speaking males in the room. You know, so she had to complain about it. And he was just like that vulgar. And his neighbor said the same thing. He was very strange around women, very forward and would just say the most vulgar things out of nowhere. So it looks like this case is at least tentatively scheduled for trial at the end of this year, but it may be pushed back. But I think the DNA, you can't beat DNA, right? But if they move to suppress it, I think if they get convicted on that case, that'll be the grounds for appeal. But at least in the short term, I think Mr. Angelo Colon Ortiz is going to be seeing the inside of Walpole State Prison for the majority of his life. But this is Massachusetts. Anything can happen, guys.
All right, guys, I think that's all I have for you. I'll keep you posted on the case as it proceeds through the news and all that, but there's DNA, so that's looking good for the Commonwealth, and man, that's just a horrible, horrible murder, and you just can't convince me that's not a death penalty case. I'm sorry. Vanessa Marcotte, just going about her life, just wanting to exercise. She's got a right to do so, and because you can't control yourself around women, she's dead. No, no, brother. All right, guys, I think that's all I have for you on it. I'll keep you posted. If you need me, give me a shout at barry at bostonconfidential.net. Otherwise, I'll see you on the flip side, all right? All right.